Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Ollie Patrick Show. We'll be changing gears a bit in this episode as we explore another interesting and cool topic for me, that is anthropomorphism. I'll have to make sure to pronounce that right every single time this episode. As you probably guessed from the episode title, of course, being that, anthropomorphism is most common in animals and is the attribution of human traits, emotions, or intentions to non-human entities. I actually did a presentation and assignment on anthropomorphism this semester for university and was surprised with what I learnt. There's some really cool stuff in this episode which you might not necessarily, you know, have linked to anthropomorphism in the past. So if you're unsure about this episode's topic, I'd encourage you to keep on listening and to give it a go. I mean, as I've said before, I mean, I could have made this podcast beyond something more specific, but for me, for me personally, having such a wide range of interests and for me to be, you know, motivated to keep on putting out new content, it's, I think, better for me that we cover a lot of stuff basically I like and then hopefully I can, <laughs> without sounding too egotistical, hopefully I can, you know, share that knowledge and hopefully it'll be an engaging listen. I mean, I always do say to people, if anyone's able to talk, about something they're passionate about it's quite an easy lesson so you know we're hoping for that with this episode and, and the ones beyond so really i think there's something you know for everyone in this episode even if the primary focus is on animals it will be inspired by stuff i learned from that research and you know any you know additional research i might do probably not that much but i, I you know I've, I've got documents from that presentation and assignment that i'll be using as well as stuff I already know, as well as my obvious interest in animals and any kind of anthropomorphic kind of franchises. So, without saying too much more in the introduction, let's begin. First of all, anthro means human, which is from Greek, and morph from Greek again actually means to change form, so that's anthropomorphism as a whole there. It appears most often in fiction, targeted, I think, naturally more to younger audiences, normally as a subgenre, it's fantasy is the kind of main one, but I mean, it was weird doing the kind of research for the assignment and presentation and whatever, but there's forms of um anthropomorphism in adult fiction M- more so in the form of allegories but you do have you know i think the occasional character like brian and family guy who's obviously the white dog anthropomorphic qualities to him and you do occasionally get it in boy well stuff like star wars there's a few anthropomorphic elements in that and you know similar shows like that which are more kind of for everyone nowadays but we'll discuss that probably more later in the episode. Anthropomorphism as well has served as inspiration for various mythologies, religions, and symbols throughout the ages. Symbolic symbolism, symbology, what you know, whatever one as as they call it. There's quite a lot of that. I mean, I think that's perhaps the principal element of anthropomorphism through the you know kind of years. But yeah, we'll discuss which it's actually, and uh, yeah, I'm not going to mention all of them, uh, mention snippets and whatever, but yeah, we'll get into the history of anthropomorphism now, as this section is entitled. I think it is interesting to note, really, that there has been a kind of, a real kind of crazy, bizarre fascination, really, with animals through the centuries, really. 
<clears throat> we are, I think, of course, animals ourselves. Not, I think, we are. Um, but it's weird, it makes sense, but it's weird to look back and kind of see how many kind of civilizations in the past have kind of drawn upon animals as, you know, important cultural, you know, symbols, you know, and or as inspiration for mythology and kind of religion. Like, some which just came to mind when I was, you know, scripting this. It was like the Aztecs, the ancient Egyptians, Native Americans, that's just free there. Uh, we'll say a bit about them um now and you know maybe say a bit about the others the aztecs lived in a very kind of warrior type society i'm not even sure when the aztecs were around it was obviously before christ so under like a thousand bce or something like that probably should have looked that up but yeah it's a very long yeah i think they were they were obviously after the the mayans um so yeah basically some you know probably quite a long time before um you know the turn of um kind of the ad's you know christ's involvement um but the interesting thing looking the Aztecs up was that the more enemy warriors you could capture the higher you could therefore progress in society um gaining a higher rank as a result of that they there were the, the two highest ranks available to commoners were the eagle and jaguar um warrior ranks if you were if you were um an eagle or jaguar warrior you would receive special battle attire that represented your rank so i don't know either something you know for an eagle like feather based or if you were a jaguar warrior you know clothing centered around the pelt of a jaguar i wasn't actually sure um really what the well there, there wasn't really um a big difference in between what the classes were but um the the difference was that they were equal the eagle and jaguar ranks but the eagle warriors worshipped i'm not even sure how to pronounce this hutsilo pochtili pochtili i don't i'm not even going to give it another go it's h-u-i-t-z-i-l-o-p-o-c-h-t-l-i and that is the war god and then the jaguar worships another difficult to pronounce word Boy, a little bit easier. Tech Katili Poka, which is T E Z C H, no, sorry, C A T L I P O C A, and that god was associated with a range of concepts. I think there's there many according to Wikipedia, but stuff like the night sky, hurricanes, the earth, jaguars, and beauty. A bit all over the place, to be honest. But if you were one of these warriors, you'd be awarded the rank of noble, and that obviously came with certain privileges attached. So these ranks probably were very, very difficult to kind of attain, Um, because they were open to commoners, and you would get a noble kind of status for getting to this stage. And I don't imagine there obviously wouldn't be too many nobles around. So yeah, it'd be quite a difficult rank to get to especially since there'd be quite a lot of commoners to kind of, you know, vine for the rank, I suppose. Um, the certain privilege, you know, you would get, as mentioned, certain privileges. Stuff like land, you could drink polka, if I pronounced that right, P-U-L-Q-U-E, that is alcohol. Uh, you could wear expensive jewellery, that was denied to commoners. You would be asked to dine at the palace and could keep, and could keep concubines. 
which I haven't looked it up, um, in polygamous societies, which I think polygamous poly, obviously, um, meaning more than one. If it was um, one, it would be mono, so it's, you know, more than one. Polygamous societies, um, the concubine would be a woman who lives with a man but has a lower status than his wife or wife's. Um, they could also tie their hair back with green and blue feathers. And that, I think, was everything according to the Aztecs. So there's a few stuff out, I maybe went on about them a bit, but um, I think, again, I think that might be the earliest, one of the earlier kind of known examples, but I think it, again, does kind of stress that it's, again, the element of anthropomorphism, or at least kind of worshipping um, towards animals involved. Because clearly there's, um, yeah, there's that, the, the animal aspect, and that was obviously ages ago. Um, late, a bit late, later on, I think. I think so, yeah. <laughs> uh, ancient Egypt, of course. The gods, they were quite kind of anthropomorphic in their kind of nature. Uh, you know, there was the common belief at the time was that the gods were capable of influence in natural events and human lives as well of course people would have you know therefore prayed for a number of different reasons um the egyptian gods did not have a you know a fixed appearance you know they commonly kind of change their appearances and myths and you know generally suits in you know different elements of their kind of character um anubis could appear as both a jackal or a god while sobek was commonly a crocodile so yeah, you kind of the element of the gods would kind of change, you know, to better suit the nature of whatever myths being told. But they were generally, you know, they were generally, you know, defined to a certain, you know, to a certain group. I'll probably not explain that very well, but I gloss over it. Also, Native Americans. I think I did find, again, this is again... <laughs> A bit, a bit bad using information I found, but um, some Native American tribes did believe that each person was connected with nine different animals that will accompany him or her through life, acting as guides. The nine, the nine aspects interesting. It reminds me of Kitsunes, which is a multi-tailed fox of I think Japanese culture. This is purely off the top of my head, so any of this could be wrong. But nine-tailed fox that I think was immortal to some degree. It's kind of as it uh, a kitsune kind of looks similar to nine tails in Pokemon, or I don't know, like yeah, just a, it was just a fox with many tails, or tails in Sonic, but that's a slightly different matter with less tails. But yeah, before I diverge too much, I mean that's just another example, really. It's, it's crazy, really, to think how as you know fascination element there really has been quite a few kind of different um kind of you know like you know snippets you wouldn't you know i don't i don't think you'd necessarily think of it or it wouldn't necessarily come to mind straight away but yeah there's been a few and you know native americans just that belief in animal kind of guides and you know spirit animals and so there's that sort of thing that you know they'll guide you throughout your life i suppose you know, there's a few other examples I'm sticking over my notes now. I think there's in Hinduism, I think Ganesh and maybe Vishnu. I can't remember which is which, but one of them has the kind of elephant, elephant kind of form to it with like multiple hands. 
And again, that's another example. You have, um, going to the symbology element a bit, you know, there's quite a lot of a branding aspect. I think even if we look at, well, first of all, yeah, Richard the First of England, um, he reigned from, I think, 11, no, actually, no. He was born in in eleven fifty seven, and then died in eleven ninety nine. He was better known as Richard the Lionheart, so it's that kind of nickname element. I think again, this might be discussed a little bit in the next part in a bit more detail. But animals get kind of stereotyped quite a lot, and you know the symbology, the symbology element of it. You know stuff like you know the pig, like a meaning of if you go, you know like. The, the animal, the pig. And then if we call someone a pig, it's a negative kind of connotation and therefore rubs negatively upon the animal. Underdog is kind of another... I mean, suppose, again, that's a positive representation of a dog. Um, I mean, there's a few others, but I can't think... Oh, scaredy cat would be another... You know, so those type of things. You also have the element of branding... Um, with a lot of the the NFL teams like Philadelphia Eagles, Cincinnati Bengals, Arizona Cardinals, like I don't really follow the NFL, but I think pretty much half of them maybe at least have kind of some form of animal kind of shaped into their name. So that's an interesting point. You also have, I mean, you have it across all businesses and all you know sport really. The England national football team is nicknamed the Free Lions. I think again partly because of that. England's linked to lions through old rulers, such as Richard the Lionheart. And lions have never really, I don't think, been in England. So it's, I mean, that's the interesting thing about how lions are kind of portrayed as being quite heroic and so that sort of thing. I mean, the first real example of anthropomorphism was, in a way, Aesop's, tale, Aesop's Fables, which were first told between 620 and 500. 64 BCE. Um, so therefore, obviously, yeah, we, we, I mean, anthropomorphism has weirdly existed for so, so, so long. And it's incredible to look back. But Aesop was um, a storyteller and slave. I think slave was the interesting part, really, that he was also a storyteller as well as being a slave. I, you know, I didn't know he was a slave looking into it. But his Aesop's fables was stuff like the hare and the tortoise cannot actually think of any of those, but that those kind of um, moral kind of tales. And this, I suppose, is where political allegories would come into this a little bit, because I think he used his fables to criticise, I think, the reigning, you know, the reigning kind of class, I suppose, the ruling class at the time. And then you also had, later on, I think, a guy called... John de la Fontaine's fables, which I think were very similar in style or writing or whatever to Aesop, but I think he again used anthropomorphism to criticise the French kind of monarchy. He wrote, I think, in the 1500s, so they still had the absolute monarchy of, I think, various Louises, like Louis XIV, I think, at the time. If I'm remembering back to history, A level correctly, a lot of stuff's going back to there in terms of the podcasts. But yeah, it's that sort of that sort of thing really being involved 
Yeah, so I just lost track for a moment. Um, but yeah, John Louis, John De La Fontaine, yeah, used you know anthropomorphism to kind of more subtly kind of criticize you know the establishment. I'm not sure why it's actually it was considered to be more subtle and more kind of undetectable, but I think it was just the way that. I think, yeah, it was just, I think, a bit less obvious and people maybe didn't catch on. I mean, the other example was later on, George Orwell, with Animal Farm, was able to criticise um, the kind of, the Russian kind of, uh, I think, oh, I don't want to say it, I don't want to say socialist, I don't know for sure, but <laughs> there's a kind of communist, yeah, I think they're different, communist, the, the communist kind of way of, uh, of their outlook, style, and stuff like that. I think he initially had quite a few rejections because I think he was trying to publish it, possibly in the whilst World War Two was going on, but I might be wrong. So they a lot of publishers didn't really want to publish it and kind of affect the kind of the Soviet Union and the United Kingdom's kind of relationship at the time. And obviously, Animal Farm, I think, criticizes. I've not actually read it, but it criticizes quite a bit. And, you know, if we look more to, like, modern kind of type history, I suppose we'll get into this a little bit more later, but stuff like Sonic, Spyro, Puss in Boots, Shrek as well has elements of it. And Puss in Boots was actually, I can't remember if it might have been John de la Fontaine who created him, but I can't remember for sure, because Puss in Boots did originate in, I think, the 15, around 1550. So halfway through the 1500s. Which you wouldn't necessarily think he'd you know, the character would be from that far back, but he was. In terms of his original concept, I don't know, stuff like Donkey Kong. You know, video game from the 1980s. I mean, a lot of anthropomorphism does, especially now, you know, more modern times, there's a lot of it in animation and more books and animations actually more suited to children than adults in many many forms not always but Spongebob would be another example Red Wall, Winnie the Pooh Warriors Zootopia yeah so there's quite a lot I mean even as I said with like Donkey Kong and like elements of it in Mario and yeah all sorts so that feels like I've talked about that long enough. Um, I feel like I have probably glossed over it a lot more than maybe last week's, but I think it's hard to kind of say all about the history. Another character would be Azalan from The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe series. Well, The Chronicles of Narnia would be the series by C.S. Lewis, which is an interesting one as well, because uh, again, it's the positive portrayal of a lion in terms of Azan's presented to be very similar to Jesus Christ. I think in the first book he's punished, and then he atones, then he's later re- resurrected to kind of save the day, and obviously as a character he's portrayed as being very wise, kind and friendly. I think he's the only character in Chronicles of Narnia to appear in all seven books, so it has that kind of omnipresent nature to him. So like a divine being, like kind of God, like uh, Jesus. And I, I think in the last book, he's 
last book in the series, he ends up kind of doing the kind of second coming judgment day um type you know effect he judges those around him and then leads them to a kind of faithful guy utopia type you know thing like an ideal kind of world so he's another example so there's a weird number of examples to be honest you wouldn't necessarily think there's been so many of it but i suppose it's a simple so it's one of those terms, anthropomorphism, where you'd think of it as it sounds more complex than it is, and it's one of those things where there's a lot, there's a, there's tons of anthropomorphism throughout history, and throughout you know the world today, but you don't necessarily know the the term to define it. But anthropomorphism is that term, of course, as mentioned, the attribution of human traits or characteristics or whatever to non-human entities. Most commonly animals. I mean, I think there's various different kind of similar words to anthropomorphism. I mean, personification is a similar um, kind of word to describe, you know, human traits on other things. I'm not 100% sure what the difference is, but yep, there is. So I think we will end this (laughs) part now. I think I've talked long enough. Hopefully it's not being too kind of crisscrossy, I think. Unlike Blackbeard's one, it's probably a little bit more... I don't want to say all over the place, because it makes me sound like I've not done this so well. But, yeah, a bit more. We've covered more ground, I suppose. So, yeah, we'll move on to the next part now. So, on to kind of the positives and negatives of anthropomorphism now. I was surprised when looking up subject matter for the kind of presentation and assignment for university, it was surprising to find that there were kind of people who looked upon anthropomorphism in a negative kind of light. I still find anthropomorphism is more positive and negative, and I think some of the stuff I found was a bit... Surely you could apply that to as an adverse to a lot of fiction but I did kind of understand the comments made um, it was particularly the kind of negative the, the the people who had the negative view were mainly kind of conserv- conservationists and kind of biologists and it was intriguing to consider I did come across one concert, concert, conservationist and environmental social scientist called Paul McCartney and he he kind of believes or believes what Disney kind of driven films like Bambi are anthropomorphism to its most sinister and damaging extent, a deliberate decision to exclude all wildlife predators from the film, adaptation of Bambi in order to portray humans as the only enemies of wildlife, and this deliberate manipulation of nature with a gold mine. He he mentions as well that Walt Disney was anti hunter, so that very well why he could you know push his kind of happy films promoting the value of nature in favor of other ideals so it's kind of like, i think what they're criticizing is kind of the misrepresentation of kind of animals through anthropomorphism through making them more like us and i think his point as well is that anthropomorphism can kind of be altered and or, mal- or manipulated to a person's way of thinking about animals 
and an emotional response can become more important than a logical or a scientific one. So that's for you know affecting the decision making progress in terms of how you treat animals. Yeah, you know, I suppose more humanely or more kind of with an an emotional kind of uh kind of more of an emotional reaction in mind. I think again, as mentioned, I think he kind of picked up on this as well. I think that's why it's probably where I got the point from. But there are certain animals, some I kind of thought of, you know, like lions, penguins, dogs, all the cute ones pretty much, that have been more kindly represented in works of fiction. As mentioned by McCartney, this has had a knock-on effect on species like insects, who haven't, you know, who aren't viewed anywhere near in as good light as lions. I, myself included, absolutely hate some insects. I think, again, it's their lack of beauty, I suppose. Like a lion has kind of that heroic, kind of beautiful kind of look in nature and kind of representation to it, where insects are kind of the opposite, you know, bottom dwellers, uh, just really ugly type things. Like, we're meant to be scared of them, like we should be, or whatever. That is that natural response. That probably has been built up, the the natural kind of stereotype and fear of insects has yeah, probably been affected by that and their obviously strange appearances. Despite the fact that some insects are an important part of insurance of uh, kind of having an in ecological balance. Like bees would probably be the main ones. I think flies do something, even though I consider them to be very, very pointless. They're very, very stupid creatures. And I suppose wasps, are, I think they have a reason as well, but whatever that reason is, I'm not sure. And then there's also, so yeah, the point of that is kind of, the you know, the representation of certain animals is different. So we look upon them differently, we treat them differently, we kind of look down upon some more than others. And this extends to stereotype animals like pigs, as mentioned in the, in the negative light the negative connotations that are attached to pigs. Obviously the anti balance of that would be lions. What what was said about Aslan in the last sec um last segment would you know, basically yeah, that's what that's what, you know, the opposite is. You know, in very different lights they're treated in. I think it's interesting there's a slight philosophical I think um approach to this in terms of do we impose these kind of will, our kind of will, our designs, our concepts upon animals and other beings? And kind of, we, we have to, like, we feel the need, like, we, we must relate them back to our image. We must kind of view them in our light. Like, what? I suppose it's kind of, <laughs> I have a joke in mind about the US <laughs> wanting oil from the Middle East that I probably shouldn't say, but. I mean, I kind of just said it, but in terms of we want to have our hands on everything, I suppose it's the same reason why um, a lot of European, you know, governments in history had colonies and stuff like that. We we want to see everything. We want to explore everything. We want to kind of have almost the control element to everything, really. Like we want to have that absolute control over, you know, how things are perceived and everything. But for me, the positive side of anthropomorphism would be that 
I, I know it can affect our way of thinking, but surely, surely anthropomorphism really can only bring people close to animals, raises their, raises their level of sympathy and empathy towards Mother Earth's, you know, creatures. And I think, therefore, sure, you know, surely it, it only really improves animal welfare and raises awareness of key environmental issues. I think as a result, I mean, and... I think really, I mean, despite what McCartney says, films like Bambi have actually inspired interest in animal conservation. Sir Paul McCartney, weirdly close to McCartney and name, he actually cited Bambi. He's of course one of the Beatles, I think. Um, he cited Bambi as inspiring him as a child to treat animals fairly, and has since led to him working with organisations like the RSPCA and PETA. I I've no specific, I suppose, examples in my case, but. Speaking from kind of personal experience, video games and or books and or any other type of media really promotes animals. It has really only deepened my respect and admiration of all sorts of species. As I suppose McCartney's point about it affecting your decision making emotionally more so than a scientific um kind of perspective is probably true in my case, definitely. But I think how let's think how far does that stretch? If you apply the logic of don't get emotionally attached with anything because it will affect your decision making. Surely that just turns us into kind of cold-hearted machines. Um, I don't really know. I think it's the. I think it's a valid argument that he makes, and I suppose is the kind of is the main kind of opposition to anthropomorphism. But I just surely think, as I said, that like if you apply that to every single, surely you could apply that to like loads of like fiction and loads of different things, that. You're you're kind of changing someone's way of thinking about something, and I suppose you could kind of argue, well, isn't everything around us everything? I'm looking around the room I'm in now. Like, surely all of this is kind of constructed somewhat by our own kind of thoughts and our own experiences, and there's always going to be an element of emotion in there. If there's not an element of emotion to our decisions, then are we really human? In a way, it's getting philosophical, but. I I think, yeah. How far, far does that logic stretch in a way? If you're really gonna take it to its core. And again, I mean the positives as well. Like I think even though there are stereotypes, I think the symbolism symbology. I've changed between them too much this episode, but the symbology involved. I think despite the stereotypes, it can help explain the way the world to children, which is kind of the main element of anthropomorphism like you see it a lot in like picture books like three little pigs i suppose and uh, little red riding hood with the wolf there's a bit of an element of that in there so yeah i think it helps to but another point i think i did see is that children found animals dressing up in human clothing funny i think and again there's that sort of element to it that is just a bit of fun at the end of the day uh, <laughs> I suppose McCartney's maybe that side of things is a bit too serious of a point of view, and again it relates back to the you know how far do we, do we take that argument across all fiction that it, it's emotionally affecting our decision making. So let's not do that. And again, I think having the symbolism, sim, having the symbols of you know like the three lines, the prancing horse for Ferrari, only kind of enriches our culture and world and additional kind of, you know, worth to these brands and whatever. And 
I, I think the argument is quite over the top. Would be my kind of, I think my takeaway from that. I, I just think, as I said, how far can you stretch it? Really, and so you know, some more views. You know, would be anthropomorphism is an important means of creating new exciting content. It offers a different perspective on the world that wouldn't be possible without the animal's point point of view. You know, like we're at Sprawler and you know what they think, what they see. It's more, I think, imaginative. And again, would you know, would we be stripping the imagination away if we were to say anthropomorphism is, is bad? So. And I think having the animal's perspective can only kind of help to confront, you know, environmental crises. You see a lot of stuff going on now of like, well, we've got to do something about climate change. I hope we do, but I think considering what a lot of the politicians are like, it will probably be a case of it's too, like, they'll kind of say, oh, we're going to do something about climate change. But by the time they actually do it, it's all going to be um, going in the wrong direction in a way, I think, as it is now. Like, they need to actually do something instead of just saying that they are it's just the process is too slow but like, anthropomorphic fiction can help kind of discuss stuff like overpopulation plastic preserving the world's most endangered species raising so support and hope the support element through that sympathy empathy i mean i'll probably talk about it in the next segment anthropomorphic fiction but i mean i wrote something that was published uh, a few years ago well a year or two ago now i think and that mainly discussed was mainly about overpopulation and Kind of animal conservation and stuff so that's kind of what my writing is sometimes about so again I would consider that more of a positive I'm probably a bit biased I suppose in that view but you know I think overall even with suggestions that anthropomorphism can distort, distort reality and can influence decision making in a negative light I would I have to say I, I, I'm more along the lines of as mentioned, would that not mean all elements of fiction or escapism are obsolete? Are they not necessary? Like, should we not have the escapism, you know, around us? Maybe I'm reading into this wrong, but I think, like, like I said, I have, I'm probably repeating a bit too much, but I feel like how far does the does this argument stretch of anthropomorphism because it's the fiction element because of it's the creative element and its effect on our decision making surely all fiction is some way influencing surely everything we do influences in some way so again I think his decision's a bit over the top maybe I'm getting a bit too philosophical about this and I probably am but I think anthropomorphism can only promote goodness to animals I don't think I I don't really know how anthropomorphism really can promote negatives. I think, I think that's for me that if if we conclude now, that's for me the main crux of this argument. Really, anthropomorphism does a lot more good, in my opinion, with all the creative media that inspires kind of people to just like animals more. And if you like animals more, then you're gonna kind of respect and kind of you know care about them more. So it's a natural process, and I think anthropomorphism as a whole does more good than it does bad main segment of today's episode talk about anthropomorphic 
fiction more as a whole. I suppose similar to last week's segment with the Blackbeard stuff, we're just going to list a few things that talk about a few things in you know quick detail about our anthropomorphic fiction. I suppose, as I said, there's been anthropomorphic fiction throughout the kind of times. You know, there's been lots, whether it's kind of stuff in the 1800s to 1900s, like Three Little Pigs was published, I think, in circa 1886, you know, including the nursery rhymes of England. It's an early example of stuff like Animal Farm, The Wind in the Willows, were published in the first half of the 20th century. And later on, you had books like Watership Down and Red War, published in the second half of the 20th century. And then you have, more recently, Into the Wild, that's Warriors and the Travelling Cat Chronicles, which I have a copy of at the moment and will maybe be reading soon, having been published since the turn of the millennium. Maybe I could do an episode about that, actually. Possibly. Um, And again, anthropomorphic fiction continues to be a popular, I think, overall kind of, you know, subgenre. Still going strong. You have films like Zootropolis or Zootropia. I'm not sure what the correct wording is for England or whatever, but whichever one, and The Secret Life of Pets have also, you know, both achieved, I think, a very high level of success and critical acclaim in their field uh, of film, of course, animation. The Secret Life of Pets, I think, actually did really well in box office. But I can't remember what the exact figures are. I might just type it in. But, I mean, that's an example there. But I think it was, like, possibly it got, like, four or five times the box office. Yeah, The Secret Life of Pets made... I know this because we watched it in the house film a while ago. Yeah, so they had The Secret Life of Pets. It was 2016. American um, computer animated adventure comedy. So it's a buddy film as well. Um, oh, I thought it was alright. I didn't think it was anything. I've seen better films, but it, the budget was $75 million dollars. In the box office, it made $175.5 million. So it was a 10%. It, it was, it made like a 1,000%. That's its budget times 10 and then some. So it did really well, which, again, is an example of how popular anthropomorphism is. And that's across all kind of genres now. I'm just going to type Zootopia in as well into Wikipedia, but I've not actually seen that. I do need to see it at some point, to be fair. I suppose that's another, um, looking at it, that was 2016 as well, interestingly. It's a very similar time zones. And that was a buddy cop comedy film, so similar in nature. That had a, okay, wow. (laughs) Budget was $150 million. The box office for Zootopia was $1 billion pretty much, so again, that's so much money, wow, and according to Wikipedia, it made it the fourth highest grossing film of 2016, the 34th highest grossing film of all time, and the fourth animated film to surpass 1 million, 1 billion in global box office earnings, and it earned numerous accolades, Academy Award, Golden Globe, Critics' Choice Movie Award, Annie Award, Best Animated Film for Feature Film, that's the Annie Award one, and BAFTA Award for Best Animated Film. So again, there's so many. That's crazy. I didn't realise it made that much. That's outstanding, really. I mean, the 34th highest grossing film of all time 
is quite something in a way because if you consider the amount of films that get produced every year, it's like books, there's so many. I mean, less so with films, but literally there's so many. That's quite something. So that does reflect... I suppose it does reflect as well how anthropomorphism is more for children than it is adults, but there must be some adults who um, saw that. I mean, I did remember when I went to see... I think as a family we went to see, I think it might have been the third Despicable Me. I think the one with, was it Trey Parker or Matt Stone? I've, I think it was Trey Parker who was voicing the villain in it. That's the main reason why I was like, yeah, I'm happy to go see it. But there was quite a few um, adults in there, I think, as well. And it was a bit of a later, I think, evening type show in. So it was just interesting that it has crossed over a bit more to that market, but... Yeah, animated films as a whole. I mean, you have that Kung Fu Panda, which I think are great films. Anyway, Zootropia is mentioned. Or, you know, done really, really well, I think. I mean, similar... You know, really, to stuff mentioned before. I myself was published a year ago. <laughs> it's just partly a promotional plug but partly a part of you know the episode it is related to the episode i was published a year ago ish i think i'm not sure when the exact when it was exactly published but for something called tryst fate the wolf's tale i call it it was submitted it was a submitted entry for deviant arts and Wattpad's combined anthology known as tryst fate it was i think distributed i think throughout libraries in the u.s I have my own copy actually. I think for to be honest, it's actually really, really nice. Co- you know, cool, unique cover. It's like this nice shade of kind of dark, kind of blue, and it's got kind of bronze, gold indenting, and kind of font on the cover. And the sides of like the pages are kind of covered in bronze as well. It's actually a really, really nice design. I think you might be able to find the competition page on DeviantArt. But obviously it's not open anymore. I think the actual contest was about three or four years ago. It was quite some time ago. It was, I think I kind of entered it when about... I think shortly after I'd started writing a bit more. But my entry was about Little Red Riding Hood. Because of the prompt being to change the narrative in some ways. So it was kind of to twist the traditional story or you know any kind of story and to kind of twist it. So some people did like Batman, I think, was in it quite a lot in terms of... The Joker was good and Batman was bad, or uh, I think Harry Potter was in there quite a bit. So I don't know. For example, that would be I don't know. Harry was evil and Voldemort was good, something like that. So some kind of twist. Um, I can utilize the perspective of the wolf to look at environmental issues. I think mainly overpopulation, pollution. You know, covered in there, generally treating the world better and you know, kind of natural, you know, kind of you know ways. I think when I've read it back, I find it interesting because I my style is quite a bit different to the writing in the now because a lot of the paragraphs are quite long, and I suppose it was it was first person as well. I don't normally write in first person, but obviously it was quite a long time ago really that I wrote. It. I mean nowadays I don't, I honestly don't write as much as I really wish I did, and sometimes it's hard to get the concentration in to write. I think especially, it's it's difficult to write as well when you're so out of the flow and, you know, in and out of routine of uni and stuff. I've got a bit of time off now, so hopefully I can get back into that maybe a little bit, but it's difficult overall really. But 
I think in terms of uh, Trisfate entry, I think the overall, for me, reading about, I think the overall messages involved are fantastic. I, think, I, me- I remember thinking at the time that if this is going to get published, it's more down to the messaging being discussed and kind of that kind of aspect of it, the kind of treat the what treat the world better aspect than the actual writing. I I think it's a little bit preachy in a way, but I think it is a good thing to read. If you're interested in anthropomorphic fiction, um always want to give it a read. I think you can find it on the Trist Fate website if that's easy to find. I'm not sure what the URL is for it, but I think you can probably find it up. And I think I would have been I think I had my kind of Twitter handle type username as it. I don't think I had my real name in it. So it's safe to check out. I think Eagle Claw, UK Eagle Claw would be one of those. But you have other kind of... <laughs> I shouldn't go on about my own work for too long. Um, yeah, you do have other anthropomorphic fiction, anthropomorphic characters. Quite a few video games I've listed here in my notes. Stuff like Donkey Kong first released in 1981 the character was created by Shigeru Miyamoto and Donkey Kong obviously since been a part of many different video games as well as the popular Mario franchise I think Donkey Kong I think either that was or Mario is kind of thought to be the kind of saving grace of video games I think they were struggling a bit around that point and that came out and obviously the technology improved after that so it was able to I think kind of kickstart that video game resolu- revolution. We also have Brian Griffin, who I suppose is the main adult anthropomorphic character that I kind of got on the list, but he's obviously in Family Guy, one of the better Family Guy characters, in my opinion. I mean, I think Family Guy's a good show, but I think it's also, I don't think it's anywhere near as good as South Park or Simpsons, in my opinion. Mainly because they destroy Meg as much as they can, which I think treating your own characters that badly for so long is a bit of like a bit stu- it makes you look bad as well. And I think overall, The Simpsons and South Park just do things better. I think South Park had an episode about Family Guy, and they kind of exposed them a little bit for how they do their jokes and not being as good. But before I diverge too much, another Freedom Planet. There's no one for on Steam piece. I think it might have come out on Nintendo Switch recently, actually. I saw something on Twitter, but it's kind of anthropomorphic type of characters. That's a bit more of a sci fi type setting there. Red War, which ran from 1986 2011, it was a series by Brian Jacks that yeah, ran for 25 years. Um, I think most of the stories focused around Red Wall Abbey. It was in a kind of forest type habitat. So you had a lot of kind of woodland critters, I suppose, like squirrels and mouse, mice and rats and that sort of thing. I think that was Red War was sometimes criticised for being too for, formulaic, but it generally did quite well, I think, as a series. Although it's not that, I don't think it's as well known as Warriors, Warrior Cats, as some know it, which is the first kind of. A Dangerous Path, which I think is the fifth book in the first series, is the first book of the really the first book that got me into reading at the age of when I was younger. So without Warriors, I wouldn't really. Well, I think I would have found another book 
I probably would have found another book to motivate me to read more, but I do kind of think without that, without, you know, having first read that book, I don't think I would be where I am today doing the course that I'm doing and probably uh, having such an interest in the natural world and wildlife and, you know, having that kind of wildlife-focused mind sometimes, really. So, yeah, that, yeah again, going back to what, the negatives of anthropomorphism is like, well, that's not really a bad thing, is it? Like, yeah. And then, of course, I don't know, so like Shrek and Puss in Boots as well, like Donkey <laughs> in Shrek is a good example. I think there's other stuff in there. I suppose all the fairy tale type characters in there, even Shrek himself to a degree. SpongeBob would be another one of all the kind of sea creatures like Patrick, SpongeBob himself, Squidward. Uh, is it Sally? Or am I wrong? The squirrel, I, can't, I think I might be wrong. I'm probably wrong. Uh, Mr. Krabs, Plankton, all of them kind of anthropomorphic to some degree. I think sea creatures still count as <laughs> anthropomorphic. Spyro would be another video game franchise. I think the first one of those came out in 1998. I remember that because the 2018 remaster came out recently. The first three games that I've played a bit of. Because I'm so bad at playing video games and have so many yet to play. I've been a bit on and off playing that. But for the first time actually I've not played any of the ones before that. It's the first Spyro I think I've properly played. Properly as in I think I played bits of one earlier. I remember playing bits of one earlier at uh, friend's house when I was younger. But... Yeah, I've not really played that since. That's another example. Which is done quite well. Winnie the Pooh is an is an older one. I think that first was in nineteen twenty six, nineteen twenty eight. I think again, actually, I did a film of that recently. That um, ah, oh, what was the name of it? I've seen advertisements for it on TV recently. The kids like Robinson something, but I can't remember what. I can't remember what the other. What his like, first name or surname is in relation to that. But I think he's got Ewan McGregor in. But they're, um, I think, animated to some degree. And, yeah, it's another example. I mean, I think I had this in my presentation. In that anthropomorphism and stuff like Winnie the Pooh and Puss in Boots have kind of been revitalized by more modern ways of production. So animation, mainly. So, again, that kind of process of, I suppose self kind of revival that cycle round and round we go the most popular things get retained sonic the hedgehog would be another one probably for me the main example of anthropomorphic fiction when was the first sonic game i think that was in 1991 i can't remember exactly i think it was 1991 that would make sense so that's been going for a while now i think a lot of them I mean, maybe it's just because I was born just before the millennium. So a lot of these examples are more relevant to me than they would be for an older guy. But I think that there does seem to be more anthropomorphic type characters, type fiction, since that kind of time period in the kind of 90s, in the 80s, in the noughts, I suppose. There's a lot of it. I suppose the animation video game aspect. I suppose overall, 
I suppose overall, if we think of fiction, there's more chance ever since technology's gotten better throughout the 1900s, really. So there's been more opportunity to distribute any sort of fiction, not just anthropomorphic. So I think naturally there's going to be more fiction out there. As well as it's the same things with books, having study on a study in on a book based course. Um, the amount of books being published, I think, has risen every single year basically since it first became a thing to publish books. So it's just, I suppose, since there's been more media produced, there's naturally been more anthropomorphic fiction as a result of that. But I think that's all I have to say for the final part of this episode. We'll have the outro, of course. But yeah, I think that's everything. I don't think there's anything else to say. Aslan would be another um, Chronicle of Narnia. I touched upon that a bit earlier. Can't think of any other major ones to mention, any you know other major ones to gloss over. But yeah, we'll end this part now, I think. So that's all for today. I'm not sure what the theme of the next episode will be. I have a few in mind, but we'll see what I decide upon. Before I do end, I'd like to remind you that you can follow me on Twitter at UKEagleClaw to know ASAP when new episodes have been published. Again, the intention is for an episode every two weeks on Fridays with possible occasional special episodes airing at random to better suit my schedule and just to make sure I can get content out for you guys without having been have without having you know every week might stretch me a bit but yeah that's it for the episode before I end the I think the two main thoughts of this episode would be without the influence and impact of anthropomorphism on our lives especially at a younger age would we be as close to animals as we are right now? Again, this is kind of the for me why the negatives of anthropomorphism don't quite work for me. And I think anthropomorphism from a more philosophical angle is significant because it is a reflection upon ourselves, I think human nature and how we treat and view those around us, animals as we are on a planet wide levels level. Anthropomorphism really we're imparting elements of ourselves upon different beings and different you know just different things. So it's an interesting from that point of view. Anthropomorphism is almost a reflection of ourselves. So I think yeah, that's that's all I have to say. Thanks for listening. Hopefully, I'll see you in the next one. Cheers. Hi, thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to The Ollie Patrick Show. It's very much appreciated. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, please follow me on Twitter at UK Eagle Claw or subscribe through your podcast provider. Also, if possible, if you enjoy the show or whatever, please leave a review or you know DM me on Twitter or whatever to say about ways I can improve the show. I'm only starting out, so anything, any help is appreciated. Thanks again.